Hello, this is Irene Affle, founder and director of Amatrine Coaching and Consultancy, and you're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, we chat with Irene Affle, founder and director of Amatrine Coaching and Consultancy, about how organisations can set, design and deliver their equality objectives. We hope you enjoy. Irene, we're really pleased to be speaking with you today and we're delighted to talk to you about how organisations can set, design and deliver their equality and diversity objectives. But before we get started, when we do this on every podcast, Irene, could you just give us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at the position that you're in today? Yeah, um, come from a very humble background, really. Um, I grew up in Toxteth, um, a single parent family, um, lived in quite a lot of poverty to be honest and loved school and really really kind of excelled at school and was quite academic and that's partly because I'm very competitive and I had to be the best at uh, anything I put any subjects that I was I was studying and left school at 16 and started working for the local authority just as a clerk because I just wanted to sort of start earning money and help support my mum because she was there working two jobs to, to to put a roof over our heads. So, um, yeah, so I left school early, um, much to the dismay of my teachers who wanted me to go on to do A-levels and go on to university. But for me, it was like, well, I can do that later on. I'd rather start earning money. So started off with the local authority, worked my way up um, to legal assistant, uh, studied law, and then became quite, shall I say, not bored as such but there didn't seem to be great um opportunities for you know sort of developing and and advancing so i um i got the opportunity to join the police and that was a long story in itself i ended up leaving local authority and joining the police service which was quite a surprise for me because i didn't have very good experiences of the police growing up um having been racially abused by police officers um when i was a kid sort of hanging about on the streets of toxic not doing anything naughty just playing as you did um so i did have a very bad um impression of the police and i found them quite scary really um so joining was a big kind of <laughs> yeah it was a it was a big step it was a big step going into a, an organization that i had experienced negatively um, but I wanted to see what it was like from, from the inside, so I joined and worked with some absolutely amazing colleagues, but also suffered quite a few barriers because of my gender and because of my ethnicity. Um, but I loved my career, had some real highlights and some quite, you know, sort of lowlights as well. Um, but I had a clear vision of what I wanted to achieve and a clear strategy set out for myself and set me goals and, and I achieved those. So I was really pleased with myself in that regard. Then when I left the police, I served 25 years with the police. Um, I was involved a lot in equality and diversity whilst I was working in the police in addition to my core role. And it really kind of um, ignited my passion for um, equality, diversity and inclusion uh, because of some of the things that I did with the police service and 
like setting up a support network for black staff and for other minority staff. I also worked with um, a national organization looking at equality and diversity in the police. And I studied it as well, I did a master's degree and I studied um, underrepresentation of um, black police officers and the causes for that as part of my research dissertation. Um, so that really, really got me really passionate about trying to make some changes, not just within the police service or setting up the business, wanting to do that for other organisations as well and using my sort of knowledge, learning and experience, both personal experience and professional experience to help support other organisations with their uh, equality and diversity uh, journey. Wow. I mean, what... <laughs> What a career journey that you've had there. It sounds like a really brave move as well, you know, suffering that sort of racial abuse on the you know, on the streets growing up in Toxteth and then being brave enough to to say, no, I really want to go into this institution and, you know, try and try and understand it from the inside out. What was the driving force behind that? Was it the passion for law? Um, well, the passion for law was part of it because I studied criminal law as part of my um, legal executives programme. Um, so I was really interested in the law aspect of it. But when I was working for the local authority, I was working in child protection and I crossed paths with um, a couple of detectives who also worked on the criminal side of um, the child abuse investigations. And they were really lovely down to air chaps. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is not the experience that I've had of the police. And they were really passionate about their job and really passionate about getting a positive result for the, um, for the victims. And it was one of those officers that actually sowed the seed in my mind. Have you ever thought about joining the police? Because I was doing the investigations from a civil side, um, you know, working on behalf of the social services. And they were obviously looking at the criminal side. So we often shared and supported each other's investigations. And they, they planted the seed in my mind, really. And I was thinking, oh, God, definitely not. Why would I want to do that? And for me, it was a big no-no to begin with. But these two guys were really lovely down to earth people. And I thought there must be good people within the police and they do such a valid and important job. And for me, it was around, yes, finding out what it was like on the inside, but also like being on the receiving end in the black community of how the black community were policed. It was also a little bit about, well, how can we make things better? for how the police service serve all communities, but particularly the black community, because there was such a mistrust in the black community. Mm. I could understand why that was. So I had the kind of the personal experience from the outside, the personal negative experience from the outside, but also meeting these two officers who were really positive for me. So for me, it was like looking on the inside and seeing where the positivity was, because like, I knew there was some positive in there but also looking at where there was negativity and where there was kind of you know sort of racism and sexism and all those other things where they were operating within the police service and seeing if I could do something about it now when I first started that wasn't my goal my, my goal was just to to see what it was like on the inside to hopefully experience some positivity on the inside and to serve the community and victims that was my driver for joining but then when I had some experiences on the inside, that's what made me start to look at, well, we need to do this better because we're, we're not representative of the community we serve. We often don't understand sections of the community that we're serving. And we, how can you make the police force more diverse so that we are able to understand and police those communities effectively and efficiently and fairly? So that kind of grew as my yeah. career grew and my experiences grew within the service. And were you representing or were you serving the community that you grew up in the sort of LA to Toxteth area? 
No, they tended not to put you in the area that you grew up. Right. Because obviously, safety issues, you know, sort of being targeted and things like that. So I actually policed an area which was at the opposite end of the city, which I'd never even heard of before I joined the police, to be honest. It was um, a station called Lower Lane, which is out in Fizakli. And so I was policing Croxteth and Norris Green and Fizakli, and they're predominantly white areas. There were very, very few um, black families who lived there. I think there was only one at the time that I joined. Um, so yeah, it was a whole new world for me in terms of the community that I was I was policing, and also in terms of the service because there was just no black people around. I was like, you know, the only black person in the whole station, and you know, there was no black people in the community hardly. So uh, I did suffer racial abuse both on the inside and on the outside when I was out, you know, on patrol. Um, because I think it was a novelty for people to see in that area, particularly a black face, but a black face in uniform. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, it was, it was quite, quite a struggle. But I had a really, really great section, a really great team of um, officers that I worked with, and you know, some friendships that persist to this day. So I felt um, like a sense of belonging and a sense of like, you know, I'm working with a great team, and you know, I, I just wanted to get on and do the job. So yeah, I just dealt with those things as and when they came up. Brilliant. So Irene, you say as you reflected back over those 25 years in the police force, there were some real career highs. Would you say that that, that is the career high, is those relationships that you built or is there anything else that you could put your finger on and say, yeah, that was really important for me in terms of kind of framing how, how much you enjoyed your career in the police force? I think there were, there were a couple of um, key highs for me. One of them was when um, I was given the opportunity to work on a positive action initiative because I was really passionate about the fact that we weren't recruiting people from minority groups. You know, we, in the years that I'd been in there, there were very, very few people from minority groups joining the police, particularly from ethnic minority groups. We were sort of making small improvements with women and um, getting more women into the service, but not ethnic minorities. So I developed as part of my, after I'd done my um, master's degree, um, which was in leadership. So I designed um, a leadership program, which was a positive action initiative to take into the community, into the black community, to try and get more people interested in joining the police and to build some of those bridges and that, that um, mistrust in the black community. And because I was from Toxteth and because you know, my family were well known there and I was well known there, the message coming from me having been in the police service and served in the police service and risen to the rank of inspector i felt that i could have um, more of an influence on trying to get more people in, interested in joining the police and it was about being honest about you know that yes the police service has got a lot a long way to go um, and the way there is sexism there is racism but we can't overcome that with such a small group of minorities within the service, we needed more mi minorities to join. So this programme that I designed, was a, it was a leadership programme, but it brought people into the service because they were able to do a work placement as part of the programme so they could see all the different careers that were available. So it's not just about, you know, patrolling the streets because that is a really important part of policing, but there are so many other specialisms that people could go into as part of a policing career. And I think that wasn't something that people were aware of because they don't get to see the, you know, those other specialisms. They only encountered, you know, the police officers on the beast. So enlightening that, you know, bringing that knowledge to um, to people was really, really um, useful. And that program, I ran it over three cohorts, and we were able to increase 
the uh, recruitment of diversity groups as part of that programme. And it was then emulated by other police forces around the country. And on, on the back of that, I was actually headhunted to join the um, College of Policing, which is the professional body for policing. And they wanted me to work with 21 forces around the country, supporting them with their recruitment of um, ethnic minorities. And that was really uh, such a wonderful role for me because that was what I was about. It was about improving the police service and making it more diverse. So getting that opportunity was absolutely fantastic. So I'd say they, they were the particular highlights of my career, really. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's really exciting. As you say, it's so important that the general population can see people within the police force of, you know, every every background. So it's really important um, that you ran that programme. And I know you've reflected a little bit already. And then also in the ITV news series, Black Voices in Conversation, you talked about how as a police inspector, you then had to battle um, this prejudice against being a black woman rising through the ranks. Um, is that why you then instigated that programme? Or did you um, experience that prejudice as a result of um, running that programme? Can you tell us a bit about that prejudice that you faced and what it taught you? Well, it, it was one of the reasons why I ran the programme, really, because I had suffered some instances of um, racial and sex, sex uh, discrimination and, um, you know, racism and sexism. So it was most probably more sexism than racism, I was surprised to find. But for me, it kind of like, because the, how can I explain it? As a sort of person from a minority background, there's a presumption of incompetence that follows you around. You're presumed to be incompetent unless you prove yourself over and over again. That's what it felt like because I saw people coming through and rising through the ranks who had less skills than me and less competencies than me, but they were getting through the ranks and they generally tended to be white men. Um, so for me, it was about like one number one, proving to myself that I was capable of doing that, but also proving to others that I'm capable of doing that. But I did have to work that bit harder in order to get to overcome that, you know, that presumption of incompetence, to show that I am capable, that I am intelligent, and I am able to um, to perform at higher ranks. So it was, yeah, it was kind of like that. Those barriers that drove me to want to 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 do this program and to run this program, and to also to be in that network, be in the the uh, Black Police Association, to support others who wanted to go for promotion but didn't feel that they either had the skill set because the, because the confidence was shot because of their experiences or that just didn't feel that, you know, um, it was a role for them because they didn't see any role models in the organisation that represented them. So for me, it was important to show that um, to be a role model and to, to try and support others to come through the ranks. And the great thing about that was when I left the service, there were a lot more people of colour in rank than when I joined the service. You know, so that for me was a was a really big um, positive for the work that I did, for work that I done. Because when I became an inspector, becoming the first black female inspector in the history of the force, I didn't realise that at the time until I was approached by a local historian who wanted to do um, a book around Liverpool black pioneers, so people who've been firsts in their careers. And I was like, what, really? And then I thought, well, why did that come as a surprise? Because when I looked around the service, there were very, very few people who actually looked like me in the service and certainly none who were in, in rank. So for me, that was a massive step forward and a real proud moment for me 
Um, but for me, it wasn't just about what, I, what I'm doing. It was about supporting others to do the same and to even go beyond what I've done. So that was what, what happened. And that was the ultimate legacy that was left behind. So I was really proud of that. Yeah, definitely. So you should be. It's a, it's a really interesting journey as well. I mean, we've we've spoken before, haven't we, Irene? And you mentioned um, something that just opened my eyes a little bit when you were talking about the microaggressions and the and sort of casual sexism that you experienced. About being, I think you were talking about being in a in a child protection conference and you know being around the table, and it was sort of in those meetings, it was your assumed responsibility that you would make the tea which just sounds crazy. No, and it is, it's kind of like, because it's, when I talk about racism and, and sexism in the police service, it's not overt stuff. It's not like, you know, being called names or, or things like that. It's not overt stuff. It's subtle behaviours, like those microaggressions that we, we talked about, Matt, you know, about, you know, being expected to make the tea or being asked to, to take the notes you know, little things like that, that you just think will seem quite innocuous, but it's like, what are the presumptions that are, are behind those those requests and those those, presumption, those presumptions of the role that you're gonna play in that particular meeting? And I also remember like on several occasions when I was the night detective inspector, when you're on night duty, you're the senior investigating officer on duty. So if there are any major incidents, you get called out to those incidents to take over the, you know, the forensics and the and the to to guide the, the um, investigation. And often when I turn up with a with a male colleague who was a detective constable, because I had a team of detective constables as well, um, the presumption was always made by the officer at scene that the man was the was the DI, that the man was the boss, and they'd immediately go and speak to him, and I'd be like, excuse me, you know, I'm the DI. Can you address, you know, you, you report to me? And it was like, why are you presuming that the man's the boss, you know? And it's those little things that, you know, very innocuous and not not deliberately meant, you know, to, to, to hurt or to injure or to undermine. It's just what the mindset is. And that's where, and they're coming from places of unconscious bias because you, yeah. you, you men must be bosses, women can't be bosses. Men must be bosses and yeah, women, you make the tea or you take the notes and, you know, you're cast into an admin role kind of thing. And I remember when I first joined the police, um, you know, if there was anything that involved women or children, automatically I was the one who was who was given that job. And it was like, I haven't even got any kids. So, you know, you, you're, you're a dad, you're a dad. You're probably better capable of dealing with children than I am. You know, I had no experience whatsoever, but because I was a woman, you know, I must have natural skill set to be dealing with children. And I haven't, to be honest, not at all. So yeah, it's called sorts of those presumptions that are made about your gender and you know that about the roles that you cast into. And on the one hand, you know, going out and dealing with like confrontation situations, yes, there was a protective element where my my colleagues wanted to sort of, you know, protect me from from you know getting involved in fights and things like that, which is great, you know, absolutely. But I do the same self defense training that they do and on top of that I also studied jiu-jitsu for, for four years so I was even more <laughs> advanced than them in some ways in terms of protection protecting myself and, and being involved in confrontations but there's that kind of protective element that goes on around women less so today because you know women are very capable of dealing with conflicts and um, you know we tend to be very good at using our mouths to diffuse a situation than getting involved in a, in a fisticuffs so yeah, there's a, there's there's real skill set that women have that some men don't have. But you know, it's it's about maximising that skill set, isn't it? 
but yeah, it was just at, at the beginning, it was just like, oh, goodness gracious, you know, <laughs> let me just get on with the job. <laughs> you know, I get paid the same as you. Let me just get on with the job the same as you. So, yeah, it's uh, just some little nuances like that that people kind of do unwittingly but can have an impact to make you feel undermined or less than. So, yeah, it's, it's about, but you have to be able to recognise them and you can't recognise them unless they're reflected back to you. So, Irene, uh, what you're saying, I mean, as a, as a white female, I can relate to some of what you're saying around um, fem um, being female and those kind of microaggressions. And I think a lot of women um, and, a, you know, a lot of people from different backgrounds will be able to relate to what you're saying. How do you not get exhausted by that? You know, when it happens day in, day out, how do you not, how do you keep going? How do you continue to get to the rank that you've got to when, you know, almost on a daily basis, you're having those little microaggressions um, kind of pushing you down. How, how do you deal with that? I think you really do have to choose your battles because it can be exhausting. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be challenging every single one because that does become exhausting. And not only that, people will then start to, um, see you as having a chip on your shoulder and oh god you would say that because that's what you always do and that kind of thing so it tends to have less impact if you yeah. tell people all the time um so yeah I think choosing my battles was one way of kind of being able to navigate through that and and not sort of um get pulled down by it and also you have to have a pretty strong personality and, and belief in yourself as well to, to know what you're capable of um and so that you don't get bogged down by some of the viewpoints that may be negative towards you you've got to really have some resilience in your own self-belief and what you know um, things that you know that you're good at and things that you know that you're capable of so that you can counteract any negativity around that so but it can be exhausting and it does get exhausting and, and at a certain point in my career I did start to feel oh, I'm fed up of fighting these battles and I just wanted to just go into a box and just be left to get on with the job and not have to, to fight. But I think it's important to fight when you've got the, the, the stamina and the resilience and the capability to do that because there are others who haven't got that. And so you're a voice not just for yourself, you're a voice for others as well who don't feel like they've got that confidence to be able to, to, to stand up and to, 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 you know, to sort of fight back. Yeah, I think there is that thing around balance, isn't there? Because I think, well, I can only speak for myself, but as, as a, a female, you sometimes worry about, you don't want to be labelled as the, the one who's always got a chip on their shoulder and always challenging, and you get labelled as feisty or bossy, or I've had both of those plenty of times. But it is that balance of, I want to challenge this, um, because I want it to be a level playing field, but actually... Mm -hmm. I don't also want you to think that I'm feisty and got a chip on my shoulder. So I guess, as you say, it's about picking your battles, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you do challenge, I mean, people don't like to be challenged, do they? You know, they don't like to, to feel that they've done something wrong or that they're in the wrong. So it's about how you challenge as well, you know, because it's all for me. It's about education and helping people to see the impact of behaviours and the impact of some of the things that they say, because it may well be, and more often than not is, unwitting and not meant, but people need to know that it still has that impact on people. And if they're not aware of it, they, 
people will just carry on doing it. So it's about educating people and, you know, sort of raising awareness as opposed to beating people up and saying, oh, you're a bad person because you said this or you did that. Because it's not about people being bad people because they perpetrate some of these um, behaviours. It's about educating people as to the consequences of the behaviours and the impact it can have on others so that they're, they're educated not to do it again. Well, your passion for education has clearly taken you a long way. So, I mean, we bring yourselves right up to date. You're now the founder and director of Amateur Coaching and Consultancy, where one of your key priorities is to draw from your experience and your expertise in matters of diversity and inclusion to support organisations to meet their objectives. And you've done some work with us at the University of Liverpool, and I'm sure you, you know, you've, you've done plenty across, across the country. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you support organisations around this agenda? Yeah, I mean, for me, quite often equality and diversity is in the hard to do, too hard to do tray, isn't it? It's like, you know, organisations are passionate about being inclusive, about, you know, having equality of opportunity, but their processes often aren't conducive to that and yeah. often present barriers to that. So for me, when I go and work with an organisation, a new organisation, the first thing I'd like to do is to see what the present position is, I'll call present position audit. So where are they in terms of representation, in terms of the staffing, uh, in terms of their board, in terms of their senior leaders? So what do they look like first and foremost? So getting some data around that. I also like to support them with a cultural audit as well to identify if there are any disparities in terms of the experience that minority staff have compared to majority staff, because that will indicate whether there are any um, blockages or barriers um, in the workplace. So getting a feel for what it feels like to work for that organisation, being from a minority group, do you feel included? Do you feel you have equal opportunities? Do you feel there are any barriers in your way? So getting some data around that as well. But it's about having a comprehensive strategy as well, because most organisations will have policies, like, you know, quality and diversity policy. You know, they'll have people policies around, you know, sorts of bullying and harassment and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But do they have an overall strategy of what they want to achieve in the DEI agenda? You know, what do they want to look like? How representative do they want to be? You know, what people do they want to have on their board and, and in their senior positions? So it's about having a strategy that actually is a living and breathing document but has some um, objectives and key performance indicators so that they can measure their progress. Because just having a policy that sits on a shelf doesn't do anything. You know, it's, it, it's, not, it's not work, it's not work do, making any changes. You've got to have a strategy with actions and measurable actions. And it also has to have ownership because they tend to have these like policies and strategies, but there's no ownership and there's no sort of um, action plans that underpin what the strategy is and underpin, underpin those objectives. So I help organisations to develop that coherent strategy with objectives that are you know, key to that business, what that business wants to achieve, and with some measurable action plans so they can measure progress over a period of time. Because strategies aren't something that just is written once and then that's it. It's got to be monitored, it's got to be reviewed, and you know, you've got to be able to measure it to see whether it's reaching its objectives and reaching you know, the ultimate aim that the, or the mission that the organisation wants to reach. So that's what I support organisations with developing that strategy. And also on the back of that as well, um, I also deliver training around um, unconscious bias and those microaggressions that we've been talking about. And also I do some um, confidence workshops as well with minority group staff. 
staff from minority groups to help them to develop their confidence and uh, capabilities to to go for those promotions and to go for you know to you know to reach their own potential as well because quite often the biggest barrier to progression is confidence because when you're experiencing those microaggressions it can you can internalize some of those messages and start to think that you're not good enough and that you know you haven't got the skill set and then you don't see anybody like you in those senior positions so you just think you're not capable and it's about breaking down those internal barriers as well as removing the external barriers in terms of recruitment processes and any bias that's inbuilt into those processes yeah, that, that's really interesting that. So you, you take a holistic approach to these organizations. And so you look at those processes and procedures. And I've, I've heard many of time about the computer says no, when we're trying to do something around recruitment, and you just think, well, hang on, that's the, it's the fairest way to do recruitment. But you know, we, we're, dr we're driven by systems in some places. So yeah, I really like the approach you're taking there, the holistic approach where the, you're dealing with the organizational bits, but you're also helping individuals. I take it you're doing that through coaching, yeah, you are. That sounds coaching and, and, and also the workshops as well that I deliver um, with, with, with staff inside the organisations. Brilliant. So you must have some really uh, good success stories of, of that then where people have hopefully managed to break out of that or break past that sort of glass ceiling and, you know, been able to progress further on. That, I think that's the biggest um, satisfaction. The biggest degree of satisfaction for me is when I see people grow develop and start to achieve their goals and that to me is just like yeah that just gives me real um a real sense of satisfaction that you know i've made a difference um because it's about helping people to progress you know making helping people supporting people to progress to their full potential and to overcome those barriers and to overcome those new um, experiences that they've had, those negative experiences that they've had, so that they can grow themselves. And when I see people progressing and getting past those barriers and actually seeing that they can develop and they can grow, it's just wonderful for me to see. And that just, that's just like, well, yeah, I've done my job and, and that makes me feel really good, you know, to see others grow. I mean, that's really interesting. So if you could summarise the key points that organisations must address to set, design and deliver authentically on their equality objectives, what would they be? Well, first and foremost, they've got to look at themselves and see where they are and see what barriers they can identify in themselves to why the, you know, the, the organisation is not particularly representative or progressive in terms of equality and diversity. The main thing for me is making a core business because quite often, you know, the equality and diversity is an add-on. It's like, you know, there's a major event that happens or a major scandal that happens, like we had with the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd. And then people think, oh gosh, we, you know, we, should, we need to do something about equality and diversity. Yes, that's great, but it should be core business. It should yeah. come through your organization and every individual within your organization should have a commitment and um, a, a, yeah, a commitment to advance the equality and diversity agenda on an individual basis as well as an organizational basis so it should run through everything that you do you should be asking the question how will this impact equality diversity and inclusion within our organization and making it that core business and that thread that runs through the whole of the organization is something that organizations often struggle with because it's often an add-on so getting getting it to be core business and to run through the whole of the systems and processes within the organization is one of the biggest challenges, I think. And also making sure you listen to staff, 
because staff from minority backgrounds have a real message to give to the organization because they're on the receiving end of the organization's policies and processes. So listen to your staff and make sure that you hear them, give them a platform to, to be able to give their feedback and also use that feedback to shape your future agenda. Because it's not about people just moaning about, you know, you know, um, I'm not getting equal opportunities or I'm not getting this, that and the other. It's about the reasons why that's happening. And that, it, that often um, actually speaks to some business um, policy or some business process that's causing a barrier. So listening to your staff is another thing that I think is, is really, really important. Making it part of people's performance criteria as well. How are they advancing equality and diversity within the organization? And that could be something as simple as mentoring somebody from a minority group or, you know, setting up a support network or being an ally and challenging things in the workplace when they see and hear things that aren't right. You know, very, very simple things. But it's about, you know, giving people the opportunity to do that and making it part of their um, competency profile and making it part of their review process when they when they staff when they reviewed yearly. And if you make it part of people's core business and part of their um, competencies profile, then those conversations happen more easily. And inclusion is all about having those open conversations and making sure that those it's a safe place for those people to have those open conversations and people look at it from an educational perspective as opposed to a defensive perspective because people do tend to get oh I don't want to be accused of this you know I don't want to be accused of being sexist or racist it's not about that it's about sort of having that open and honest conversation so that people can be educated it's not about sort of picking on people it's about education and if people can come at it from an open mind and from an educational perspective and it, you know, it takes away that fear and that defensiveness so that those conversations can happen organically. So that's another thing about having conversations. So listen to your staff, having conversations, making it core business and having a strategy that you can measure. You can measure with tangible outcomes. I think they're the key, they're the key um, issues for organisations and often the biggest barriers. So, Irene, are you not an advocate of having kind of focus groups or task groups? Is it more about embedding these conversations, as you say, through the core business and actually not having it kind of siloed off into little groups? I think just thinking about my experience of working in universities, often we have the kind of EDI group or, you know, uh, the women's group, which I'm part of. Um, and I think, to be fair, the university then do listen to those groups and, and try to be informed by what comes out of those groups but actually it's the ideal that actually we don't have groups we all bring it into the core business would you say or is it a bit of both um i think um focus groups play a key role in basically having that voice and giving that voice to minority groups so they do have a part to play but it's only to 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 i suppose to magnify the voice and make sure the voice is heard for then the organization to take action because as you rightly said there Alex it's about listening to the voices and taking action not just having these groups who just sit in their own little silo and talk about these issues and then it goes nowhere yes they have a role to play but it's about feeding that voice into the core business and then for it to start to feed into core business and become core business so for me the ideal um outcome would be not to have to have these focus groups but in the beginning or at the start of a journey the focus groups can have can really really kind of focus minds and focus attention 
and bring out those um, get those voices heard. But then it should be re woven into the core business so that those groups no longer need to exist because every, it's on everybody's mindset and everybody's thinking, you know, EDI, how does this impact EDI? How, what impact could this have on our minority groups? What impact could this have on our customers? What impact could this have on our organisation? So, yes, focus groups are very important and key, particularly at the start of the journey. But really, the ultimate aim is to not to have to have them because it's on everybody's agenda. Irene, you've given us some really good practical advice there you know about you know listening to your staff and making it core business one of the things you touched on was mentoring as well and we're looking at the at the moment around um reverse mentoring and how we can maybe embed that as part of as part of some of our core business have you had any experiences implementing reverse mentoring into organizations or suggesting it um, I think reverse mentoring is absolutely fabulous and I know a lot of organisations are doing reverse mentoring um, and a lot of organisations I've worked with I've started to implement reverse mentoring and the thing for me about that is you know when you start getting to the senior leadership position or board position of an organisation you often forget what it's like on the ground and what it's like for people to be you know kind of trying to carve out a career for themselves, particularly people from minority groups and some of the barriers that they face in trying to do that. So for me, reverse mentoring is really, really important because not only do the mentee, mentees um, gain some perspective and gain some knowledge, but it's also helpful for the mentors as well to learn. So it's a it's a win-win situation for me. And I think it's about sort of the grassroots of an organization and the and the peaks of an organization being able to cross-pollinate and being able to learn from each other. So I would say it's a it's a really great way forward. Brilliant. And I like what you said in your story on the women's organization webpage that your motto is your perseverance is your measure of your belief in yourself and I guess that comes into your understanding of mentoring as well can you explain this for us in terms of the impact that that motto has had for you yes that's all for me is around not giving up on yourself you know you know yourself best you know what your skill set is you know what you're capable of you know what you want to achieve you know what your vision and values are and you know what you want to achieve so it's about not giving up on yourself when you're presented with barriers and, and, you know, when you have to fight and fight and fight. It's never giving up because if you really want to get to your end point and your mission, then you've got to persevere. And the more you persevere, the more you believe in yourself, the more you're going to achieve your, your ultimate goal. So, yeah, that, that, that's kind of a saying that I've had for, God, for so many years. And it started off with it started off with um, training really, um, wanting to run because um, I was always a, a sprinter. And when I left school, there weren't very many opportunities to to be able to continue competitive sprinting. So I started to do more distance running and doing the Liverpool Women's Ten K and and stuff. And it was about persevering with you know getting to do those long runs when it wasn't something that came natural to me. So it started off with that, but then it started to feed into um my career and things that I wanted to achieve in my career um and it was like the perseverance aspect of it was what kept me going because it was about my belief in myself and if I get if I gave up then that meant I didn't believe in myself and, and that to me was was not not acceptable so yeah it was about just keeping on and keeping on and keeping on you know overcome the barriers as best you can get support to overcome the barriers whatever you need to do but just keep going because that's how you measure, that's how you measure your belief in yourself. 
And who instilled that in you? You talked a little bit earlier about your mom. Is was it a family member or someone who who made you believe that about yourself? It, well, the, I suppose that actual saying that also came from um, a CD that I was listening to. It was one of these like motivational positivity CDs, and it was a guy called Dr. Wayne Dyer. And um, and I've been I, I listen to motivational stuff like quite often, and it was something that he said and I thought oh I'm gonna write that down so I wrote it down and then it just became my my motto and I put it on my bedroom wall and I put it on the wall downstairs so that I could look at it every day so when I was feeling down or I was feeling oh god this is just too hard to do or you know I just didn't have the energy to fight anymore I'd look at that that saying and it'd be like so you're giving up on yourself are you and that's that, is that is that what you're about and he was like no that's not what I'm about well then keep going so yeah it was just if just a little reminder just to keep going but I, I suppose in terms of self-belief um I think what my mum instilled in me was about educating myself and now I'm not just talking about um academic education although that's that's important because she was made sure that you know before we could do anything we had to do our homework and you know is as long as the homework was done and we were progressing in school, then we had, we had the freedom. So for me, it was like, oh, get me homework done, do well in school, get top of my class, and then I can do what I like then. So yeah, so for me, she instilled that education is key. And I suppose that stayed with me because it's not just about the academic side of things. It's also about, you know, sort of what people call the university of life, learning from experiences, you know, how you um, encounter people, how you support people, you know, listening to people's experiences, that's all education to me uh, and and that's um, what it's about for me as well as what can I do to help others and to help others to get to where they need to get to so academic education yeah I ultimately because I left school at 16 and I promised myself I'd do a degree I did I did my master's degree which I'm really really proud of um, but you can educate yourself at all stages of your life and in fact life is a lifelong learning exercise anyway because you're learning something new almost every day if not every day so yeah education is really key well it's been great to have this chat with you Irene and this podcast is called the developing practice podcast and we like to finish each podcast in the same way where we ask our guests if they can give us three or four take-home tips that the listener could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice so if you've got a, if you have got a few tips for us what would they be well the first thing is self-knowledge now, the reason I say that is because if we don't know what biases may be operating within us, we can't take action to mitigate those biases, can we? And we can't take action to mitigate our behaviours. So me, for me, on the EDI agenda, everybody has a responsibility to really know how they impact others how they might impact others from minority groups. So learning a bit about yourself, and you can do, you know, um, an unconscious bias um, audit. There's one. There's lots on the internet that you can do. You know these um, by, these unconscious bias audits just to find out for yourself. I mean, I've done one myself as well because I'm thinking, well, I might have some biases that I don't know about, and I've actually done some um, some audits myself just to identify whether I've got any biases because we all do have them. It's a universal human condition. So, what biases do we have? And really getting to know how your biases play out in the workplace and how it plays out and how you treat people. So just like a little bit of self-knowledge, I think is important on an individual basis, because then on a collective basis, the organization will become more inclusive naturally because people are more aware 
of what their biases are, what their behaviours are, and how that might be impacting or causing barriers for others within their organisation. So that's me. And I've had a long journey of sort of looking at my behaviours and looking at my biases. And it's only the only way people can learn. And it, and then, you know, you can start recognising it in yourself without having it pointed out to you. So that's one thing that I think is really key that people could do. Um, and how do you, how are you an ally? How do you on a day-to-day -day basis um, show allyship for others who may be disadvantaged within your organisation or within your circle? of um, you know, your community or within your, your friendship circle? How can you be an active ally? How can you support people and challenge people on a daily basis so that those people who are on the receiving end don't get exhausted with having to challenge people all the time? You can actively challenge on their behalf and then show that you know, th these behaviors aren't acceptable within the organization. So how can you be an ally on a day-to-day -day basis and how can you listen out for and challenge behaviours and um, words spoken in the workplace. That's another thing I think is key that people can do, become an ally. Um, yeah, and that also leads on to champion pe championing people from diverse groups. How can you champion people from diverse groups? How can you advocate for them within your organisation so that they do get those opportunities for progression within the organisation? What can you do to champion others? Um, particularly if you have a position of power within the organisation and if you have a position of privilege within the organisation, how can you champion others who don't have that privilege and who don't have that power? So looking at ways in which you can do that, because again, this is about embedding this equality and diversity into core business and individuals taking responsibility for advancing the agenda. Um, Oh, the open and honest dialogue as well, creating an environment where that open and honest dialogue can take place. And that's about moving away from defensiveness to towards the education aspect of it. So for me, yeah, that's a, a, a thing that people can start looking at, you know, because it's not about sort of calling people out as being bad people. Because unconscious bias is a universal human condition. It's about learning how these biases present barriers to others and educating ourselves in that so that we can minimize that that impact that we might have in the organization or in your own organization brilliant thanks irene it's been great to chat with you today it's been wonderful to to, to be able to have the opportunity to speak so thank you very much for inviting me on to speak on the podcast Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Irene. I really enjoyed speaking to her and hearing about her perspectives. Irene reflected that she felt that for people from a minority background, there was a presumption of incompetence that follows them around. And so from her experience, she had to prove herself over and over. Those barriers and that negative experience drove her to keep pushing and ultimately she developed her leadership programme to support others from diverse backgrounds. I thought it was really interesting that Irene specifically spoke about the microaggressions that people from minority backgrounds experience on a daily basis. She said that these are these kind of subtle behaviours which are far more frequent than overt racism and far harder to address. She said that we need to be aware of them because they're often seen to be innocuous and not meant to undermine, but they can actually do real damage. I thought it was interesting that Irene said that as a result, she thinks about picking her battles 
um, so that she doesn't get pulled down by those negative viewpoints which she seemed to face on a regular basis. Yeah, and now that she's got her own company, she, she likes to take that holistic view at looking at an organization's equality and diversity objectives. She doesn't just look at the whole organization, but also looks at the individuals within it too, to support them to progress and to overcome the barriers that they face. She feels really strongly that equality and diversity should be core business and not an add-on, that every decision should be made with the question, how does this decision impact equality and diversity issues, which I think is a really strong message to give. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some further resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. Also, we'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy. And you can also find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. And as usual, we are really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast provider's app. So please do take the time to review the show as it really will help others find us. Bye for now.